0: Running and I have, let's just say an odd relationship. Mainly because we just don't have a good relationship. I'm built like a fluffy battering ram, and battering rams aren't really known for their agility or endurance, they're known for their brute force. And as I've worked to drop what I'm calling the Founder 75, I found that my approach to running was just too elementary. Most of us think that running is, you know, you start moving quickly in a particular direction and just go until you stop, and that's, ta-da, running. But in reality, when you talk to the top marathoners or sprinters in the world, you learn that it's all about pacing and breaking down the run into incremental stages and doing what needs to be done in each of those stages. Sprinters spend years developing literally the first two seconds of a race coming out of the blocks, and marathoners learn the exact number of steps needed in the first two miles that they don't push too quickly and burn fuel that they're gonna need in mile 21. Every stage has a purpose and intention. In the land of SaaS, we also have these stages. We think it's just about growth and getting more revenue, but each stage has a clear purpose. We initially start with getting to product market fit. And once we've reached that, well, actually, what happens in stage two? How do you scale the thing that you've gotten traction on? How quickly should you push revenue before you're at risk of going way too fast and falling off the rails, or maybe you're actually moving too slowly? These are the types of questions that are perfect for today's guest, Mark Roberge, founder of Stage 2 Capital. As a member of the founding team at HubSpot, Mark was instrumental in designing what is now considered the vital sales playbook for scaling in Stage 2 and beyond. And after leaving HubSpot as a chief revenue officer, he became a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School and now serves as the managing director for Stage 2 Capital, which helps develop SaaS companies in the stage where most of them are going too fast or too slow and burn up all of their energy. He's gonna help us set the pace for our own scaling, coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Mark Robert gets you on the right path to scale. We talk about how HubSpot developed a data-driven sales playbook, the powerful potential of combining marketing and customer success, the science of scaling, leading indicators that signal a readiness to scale, and what to do when scaling breaks. What's the biggest risk you've taken in your career so far?
1: Yeah, I was very risky early on. I mean, I guess It's it's either like starting up with stage two and the venture capital firm, putting a lot of like the the brand and network behind that, which I think is just the reason I'm doing is such a big impact potential. But I I probably kind of lean into even back in the HubSpot days. You know, I was doing my MBA at MIT in oh four, oh five. And it's hard to remember back then, but like this was like just on the like dawn of the crash of 01. (laughs) And, you know, we always joked at the time, B2B and B2C stood for back to banking and back to consulting, right? Like everyone was like rushing away from entrepreneurship. And so I was a pretty like unusual person to still be like on the tech entrepreneurship wagon at that time. Like all my friends were going at a very stable job that had probably a high probability of wealth creation and Mm -hmm. like career stability, um, and that was a big risk, you know, to have done that, uh, early on and stay true to it, but it was just my passion. I wanted, to, I didn't want to do anything else. You know, I have been a tech entrepreneur for roughly 15 years. The last startup I was part of the founding team on was HubSpot. Um, a couple of us met at, uh, the business, uh, the MBA program for MIT, uh, and sort of launched the company out of that. Um, I spent, uh, 10 years there, uh, as running sales, um, CRO, SVB, a global sales, Uh, through the IPO. And then uh, toward the back end of that process was recruited into Harvard Business School to teach some of the first sales courses in in the MBA level. So it's been a blast. I've been doing that for six years. Uh, One of the things I love about it, it gives me a lot of um, autonomy and encouragement actually to stay very active in practice. And I choose to deploy those um, hours into the startup community. Uh, That started as basically parachuted into a different company every quarter uh, to spend a day a week and just kind of study their go-to-market and then deliver a a go-to-market assessment to their board and management team after about six weeks of hanging out there. Um, and those opportunities are, you know, largely originated from, um, the backers of HubSpot. So Sequoia, General Catalyst, Matrix, those types of folks. And then over time, um, Uh, I was approached by a young investor at Bessemer to start the VC for the first VC firm running back by sales and marketing leaders. And so that's something Mm -hmm. we did two years ago called stage two capital. Uh, The idea really um, struck a a chord with me as a a missing ingredient, not just in venture capital, but in the overall entrepreneur ecosystem. And that has been amazing. Um, It's sort of gone viral amongst my peers. Uh, We currently have 130 um, uh, LPs that are largely go-to-market C-level executives from the public um, software companies across the country, uh, whether it's Zoom, Atlassian, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Salesforce, Oracle, like Twilio, like you name it. And it's just been a humbling um, wave of support for the idea, which has been quite motivating. Uh, Fund One did is doing great and we're currently raising Fund Two.
0: No, that's cool. Before we get into that, HubSpot, Obviously, everyone's asked you about HubSpot before, but what I'm kind of curious about is—is is obviously that sales team has has kind of been heralded as like one of the playbooks, right? You know, it's kind of you got predictable revenue, right, Aaron Ross. You know, that that's the book that mm-hmm. people read, and then other people read your book um, as well as like really look to HubSpot as like this is kind of what you should emulate. Was there anything particularly different that you feel about what HubSpot did versus other companies in their sales teams? or is it more just like sticking to the fundamentals? Like how would, how would you characterize that experience?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things. So like, you have to remember, it's really hard when we were coming out in 06, like there weren't a lot of sales teams built from the ground up on an inside only motion. Hmm. Okay. Like you you have to remember, like most, almost all sales in the eighties and nineties was done in the field, like knocking on doors. Um, Largely because we didn't have the internet yet. (laughs) You couldn't do like a a Zoom or WebEx or whatever was hot at the time. And also like software wasn't deployed on the cloud. So it was just expensive for a variety of reasons. And so I think it all started with, um, you know, Benioff's vision in a way of Salesforce and the cloud, right? And this whole like cloud movement. And once they moved to the cloud, they decided to charge a monthly subscription, which caused the opening price to go down. And once the opening price went down, that movement combined with the 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 you know these this type of communication mechanism that was now capable over the uh, internet, in you know, caused a, a catalyst behind an inside sales only motion. So like that was like a very like n- new idea in 06 where we're starting the team. Today it's like obviously that's the way you do it. So so that was one huge advantage we had was we were one of the first companies that could build a uh, a sales team like that from the ground up. Now, the other thing that that caused was, it's hard to imagine this, but um, very, very few field sales teams and sales teams in general at that time were successful in getting any level of CRM adoption. Okay, and, and when you went to an inside sales motion, CRM adoption was no longer an issue. Like The inside rep had to use the CRM. And now all of a sudden, we had a whole bunch of data. One of the first organizations, so that that was another big thing was to like to have and have created one of the first sales orgs that could be extraordinarily data driven because of this new context. So I would think like that's one like early on um, accidental win that we had was um, as a young company, we hired I hired this like salesforce admin. Cause like there was no sales tech stack back then. It was basically just Salesforce, yeah. right? Like that's all you had. That's it. And so I hired, I hired this admin for like 50 Gs, which is a lot for like a series A company. Yeah. to basically soup up Salesforce for us so that like it was really easy for a, for a rep to like log a call and send an email. It's like all customized for them. So it was like a huge, like, there was a no brainer for them that they'd use Salesforce. Cause it was like making their job All this technology we now have didn't exist. Right. And so that, that, you know, kind of solidified our, our data access. And then there's like how we used it. I mean, we were just like, we had this theme of HubSpot, like in God, we trust all else bring data. Like we were just such a data driven organization. You know, I mean, the list goes on there, but I, I think it's like, people can talk about being data driven, but to truly be like data-driven everything you do from hiring to demand gen to aligning sales and marketing to training your reps to coaching your reps to forecasting like you know that's i think one thing that where we stood out is just being so data-driven on that
0: it's kind of wild because my To be honest with you, like my first conception of you as a leader, like I heard, you know, through, you know, mutual friends and stuff like, oh yeah, Mark Roberge is running sales, all this type of stuff. I had no conception of what a true sales team was. You know, the only sales, I was in sales ops at Google, but that was for like the, you know, oh, they already have an account. Let's like grow their accounts, like more farming. Very different sales cycle there. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, it's going to be all about like the training and the tactics and everything. And one of my biggest misconceptions that got shattered was you know, when reading your book and also, you know, knowing you a bit here now is like recruiting, data, yeah. and then mm-hmm. everything's beyond the initial sale, right? Like the initial sale mm-hmm. is just like the first piece of it. And so that was, that was kind of fascinating that I think a lot of people have this conception of like, you know, that the old Glengarry, Gary, Glen Ross style sales leaders and stuff like that. And it's, it's so much more technolo- technology stack people than, than I would ever have imagined.
1: Yeah. And growing. So, I mean, it's like, I've always coached my students at HBS, like don't go into sales ops because it has a a low ceiling uh, on career progression. It's very hard to go from like sales ops into say head of sales because head of sales is all about like hiring and managing lots of people. And in sales ops, you don't get that experience. However, um, because sales is so data driven, you're starting to see like early signs of the first generation of sales leaders that came up through ops because that is such mm-hmm. an important skill set. I think Yamini Rangan, who was chief customer officer at Dropbox and now is at a HubSpot comes to mind, you know, as someone yeah. that I believe kind of didn't come up through the the quota carrying, um, you know, running sales teams, but was more from an ops angle. And, you know, like you start, you think about the How 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 the Dropbox and HubSpot sales org runs, and you could see why a C level executive with that skill set is so critical.
0: Yeah, well, it's also the the kind of move with RevOps, right? Revenue operations. Mm -hmm. Totally. What's kind of your take on that? Because right now I'm seeing a lot of it. Oh, you're just renaming sales ops, basically. (laughs) You know, because you know they're they're not really combining marketing ops as much, and then customer success ops is so nascent. Like, I just don't see that in a lot of organizations. Like, what's your take on RevOps?
1: Well, I think that's where it needs to go is um is to to combine marketing and customer success. I mean, yeah, if they Mm -hmm. don't bring those in, then it really is just renaming sales ops, but like I don't think it matters whether you call it RevOps or 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 ops or sales ops or whatever. It's just more like double clicking in what exactly does it do? And you know, I think it's it's similar to the the rise of the chief revenue officer title, which was like not common five years ago. And I think it was used in many different context. But I think that the purest and most valuable was that this is a role that can unify the customer experience across marketing, sales, and customer success. And I think like the movement to RevOps is symbolic to that as well.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating because you've seen, you obviously saw a company from beginning to IPO. Um, You've seen a ton of different companies. You've obviously seen a ton of folks through HBS as well. Like, what's kind of funny is there's been all these shifts. Like, what are you seeing in the future here? Like, especially when it comes to like a revenue organization within an org.
1: I think we've scratched the surface, like with AI and BI, you know, we're still like, we talk a big game, but when it gets down to like operationally, there's, we're still kind of do basic stuff on like forecasting and Mm. stages, et cetera. So I, I think we're on the early innings of truly adopting AI at scale and, and, affecting practice, you know, just in terms of like, I've seen some like pretty cool plays coming up on just hiring profiles. You know what I mean? Like there's no reason why a large organization, like say a Facebook um, shouldn't be able to use some form of whether it's machine learning or artificial intelligence to look at their 2000 sales reps and generate a customized hiring profile. For the various roles that they have within de- various regions, there's enough data to do that, and yet we're not we're not leaning into that. I think where AI on the sales and marketing stack has been deployed d- reasonably well and is on like sort of like paid advertising, right? Where like you can just quickly run these permutations and like hone in. Well, the same analogs exist in say like things like SDR messaging that you'd say in like an outreach or a sales loft, right? So like. It's those types of things. I don't. I don't think AI is going to sell for us anytime soon. You know, there, yeah. there's just a huge like psychological human factor there that I don't think the technology is ready for, especially complex deals. But I think in all the supporting functions behind it, um, it can it can really help us to learn uh, faster and more accurately.
0: When you think of scaling, though, because you've you've seen so much context at this point, like mm. what, do, what do companies get right with scaling? What do they get wrong with scaling? Like mm. how should they scale? Like I we could probably unpack this for hours, sure. but you're just curious to your take.
1: Yeah. That's my big work these days. I call the science of scaling. Cause that was like, that was my journey. The, the four or five years after HubSpot was, you know, I saw all these data points and helped all these sales teams pretty intimately. And I don't know, like a third became unicorns and two thirds didn't. And I was like, why? And it really came down to answering these two questions. When should we scale sales and how fast? I think entrepreneurs and boards answering those questions incorrectly has killed a lot more startups than should have failed, right? And so that's really what I've been, you know, working a lot on, Um, developed a framework now that I've been speaking about for a couple of years. It's taught at Stanford, Harvard, and MIT now. And it really is, it's the, it's the investment lens for stage two and it's, you know, uh, you know, it will be my next book. It currently sits as a 40 page ebook on stage two's uh, website. It's basically like a three prong sequential framework that helps entrepreneurs and boards use more of a scientific data-driven approach to answering when should we scale sales and how fast, you know, it's basically product market fit, then go to market fit then growth and moat. But um, there's a much more um, a rigorous definition of like product market fit and go-to-market fit to help organizations have a better North Star than just top-line revenue growth. Because that, that was really the pattern that I saw was that's what killed companies is the blueprint at the end of the day was an entrepreneur had this vision, got five beta customers on their software, and it was working and called success on product market fit which i don't think is correct and they raised a series a and their new north star for the organization was triple triple double double triple revenue in year one triple revenue in year two double revenue in year three double revenue in year four and the the vc agrees with them and it kills their business Hmm. because like literally scaling for them is like let's hire 10 reps next month and see what happens Hmm. and i just like that's the blueprint and it just kills companies.
0: Is it killing companies because, I mean, basically it's killing companies because you get your your overhead too high, you're not growing enough. And then it's just, you haven't reached that next stage. Is that the basic concept or? You're just
1: not system? ready to absorb 10 reps in one month. Yeah. Is it to, to absorb 10 reps in a month? I mean, first off, let's talk about how many recruiting cycles that is. Yeah. I mean, how many final interviews do you have to do to get ten reps? How many, how many first interviews do you have to do to get ten good reps? How many, how many candidates do you have to source to get ten good reps? Like, you just don't have that hiring formula worked out yet. And then, never mind. Like, how are you going to onboard them? How are you going to feed them with demand? Like, yeah. you're not going to ten x your marketing overnight. So that just means you're spreading all your marketing across ten reps. And unless you have ridiculous amounts of demand. You just, they don't even figure it out yet. They don't even know where the demand comes from. And then what about managing them and coaching them? I've never hired a rep off the street and they're like productive right away. That's why ramp happens. And your manager plays a huge role. So these organizations don't even have managers yet. So it's just like, it just kills companies. I don't know why people do it. So that's all the framework is about is helping organizations have a better North Star than just like, um, we should triple our revenue next year and hire 10 reps next month because that's the, that's the the promise we made to our VC yeah. firm.
0: Is there a fear though? Cause a lot of this is Excel engineering, right? Like these, these graphs that are made up, you know, because, well, if we just get those 10 reps, then this will happen and this will happen. And then, Oh, it didn't yeah. happen because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. like It makes
1: total you... sense on the Excel and Excel model. It makes total sense. Yeah.
0: Do you fear that it's, <laughs> like we're, we're not venture backed. Um, we don't have a chip on our shoulder about it, but like I can imagine, and, and maybe I just don't know, like, well, I have to have that spreadsheet. I have to have that graph, right? Like I have to yes. have that graph or they're not going to fund me or these types of things. Like, yeah. is there a little bit of backlash to doing the right thing versus the right thing for finance? Yeah.
1: I mean, but that's why the, the rigor, like I have, I go into a lot of these board meetings and do some education around to everyone to get alignment. And it's not like I'm saying you should grow slower. I just think you should grow at the right time. And, yeah. and I believe in the blitzscaling movement, just you have to be ready for it. Before Eric Ries and the Lean Startup and Steve Blank, like they, they introduced the concept of product market fit like 15 years ago, and that was great. Because before then, we used to come up with an idea and actually hire 10 reps when we had the idea and sell vaporware. That was bad. Mm-hmm. And so what Eric Ries and Steve Blank did was like, okay, involve your customers, stay small, stay agile, stay, stay, um, and, and build a, um, an MVP and get like five beta customers, and then you have product market fit, and then you can scale. And I'm just like, I think that was a huge, we became such better entrepreneurs with that. It's just that we have a, we're confused as to what product market fit means. And we have a premature view on how fast we can actually scale. And so, so that's really like, if we just look at the product market fit stage, you know, when I ask 10 entrepreneurs, when do you think you should scale? All 10s I put when I had product market fit, which is great, great answer. Yeah. But then when I say, well, what's product market fit? I get 10 different answers. And, and half of them have something to do with like revenue. And I think that's really, really wrong. There's teams out there that can sell ice to Eskimos. I just think that's like, yeah. you know how to sell, like market message fit. I don't think it's product. It has nothing to do with creating value. So that's really the, the thinking I take them through is like, And that was the pattern that I saw. Is like, this this is first to focus on consistent customer attention. You know, I just just got off the phone with a great founder this morning, and he took the head of CS role initially. And I think that's a great move as founder, is like you run CS first. And I remember like David Cancel, our friend at Drift, right? He was onboarding customers uh, that were paying him $50 a month. Uh, he was literally flying to go see them in the early days. Of, yeah. That's beautiful. Like, do unscalable things early. So yeah. that—that's really what product market fit is about. Is like, if if you can get eighty percent of your customers to be successful, then you have product market fit. The problem is like retention, and you you folks do a lot of work on this. Retention is the best metric to measure that, but it's a lagging indicator. Hmm. And so we needed to find a leading indicator of retention to be our first North Star. That's what product market fit is. It's like, if you can get 80% of your customers to achieve their your leading indicator attention, then that's great. And so like examples we've seen are like for Slack, if they send 2000 team messages in the first month, then they have product market. If, if 80% of customers do that, they have product market fit. With Dropbox, if they if they back up their file within an hour, then they have product market fit. With HubSpot, this was ours. We studied this closely. Like if the company used five or more features in the 25 feature platform within the first two months, they had, then they had product market fit if 80% of customers do that. So it's really like that's much more of a substantive like answer than just like we yeah. have a five beta customers that love it. It's like if you can get 80% of your customers to achieve this like lean indicator of retention, that's a wonderful foundation upon which to build your business.
0: How are you... How are you picking that metric? Are you just picking cohorts? That's a, a tough cohorts? one. I know, like, is that, <laughs> like, like what's like a loose- Well,
1: I mean, yeah, first off, like from a measurement standpoint, we walk organizations through like setting up the customers into cohorts that they're acquired. So we can see, okay, we acquired 20 customers last quarter or 20 customers last month. What percent within one month hit that event? And what percent mm-hmm. in two months and three months? And then we can just look down the columns to see how that's comparing to past cohorts. And that gives us a really early single of how we're pro- progression um but the 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 event that we're talking about um you know team messages back up your you know files uh five or more feature usage that's a tough one like it's that's where like the artistic creativity needs to come into play because it's different for every organization i will tell you that um Common ones are like setting up the product or certain usage metrics or sometimes even ROI metrics that can surface within the first month or two. Uh, it's certainly a metric that needs to be like programmatic. Like you don't want to have like, not like CSM saying, yeah, they're good. You know, you don't want it to be subjective. You want it to be automatable and factual. Um, and it's usually something that occurs hopefully in the first month so we can learn fast.
0: It's not rocket science, but it's just, it takes a reframing of how you focus, right? Like you're not double, triple, triple, double, double. It's more like, all right, we're going to, and this is my next question is like, what do you do up until you reach that 80%? Is it basically like gonna acquire customers but we're not gonna like you know for lack of a better phrase rack and stack reps and then we're gonna do everything in the product everything in the acquisition the different channels until we feel like we have clean cohorts getting to 80 percent. is that basically all you're doing in that first yeah i mean
1: and that's what i walk in and so part of the framework is understand where we're at another part is it gives guidance as to what we should be doing our go-to-market design to to accelerate through that phase so Mm -hmm. if i walk into a board and they're like yeah we just did an A." And we're going to hire 10 reps next month. I'm like, okay, wait, let's just do a quick analysis. Hmm. Like, let's just have a discussion around what our lead indicator success is. And we'll have a discussion. We'll we'll, we'll kind of talk it through. And then, like, can we just like go back in our historic data for the last six months and just look at how we're doing in getting our customers to get to that lead indicator? Just to hmm. put the chart together. Dude, if they're showing that 80% are getting there in the first month, like, okay, like we're getting, let me ask another couple of questions, but I think we're pretty close to being able to scale. But if they're showing that like, Holy cow! Like we all just agreed that if, like, value for us is early value and early indicators, like that these folks send two thousand team messages, and we just looked at our data, and the cohort that we acquired back in May, even though it's been like four months, like less than half of them have sent two thousand team messages. I'm like, and you want to scale this business? Mm. Do you know what's going to do to us? Like, do you know how hard it is to fix what you just said? in isolation never mind hiring 10 reps and suddenly the board's like okay i'm on board like how quickly can we do this right so let's try let's let's do this for like two months and see if we can fix it and so now the north star is pretty obvious it's like okay hey company like we got to get 80 percent of our company to customers to send 2000 team messages in the first month okay so that has an implication on everyone product managers I know you have this whole roadmap, but just go study why half of our customers are not achieving this goal and do stuff like in-app messaging. Like what's the friction? Can we reduce the friction? Right. Uh, customer success managers, right. It's, if we have one at the time, like it's really hard to say to a customer, like a customer success manager, like, Hey, get your attention above 90%. Like what does a 25 year old CSM do? Like, how do yeah, you, yeah, yeah. but if you say, if you sell a 25 year old CSM, Get 80% of our customers to send 2,000 team messages in the first 30 days. Bam. That's so much more actionable. Mm -hmm. Sales team, if you have any, one or two reps, comp them on that. 50% of your comp is on the signature. 50% is on the 2,000 team messages. Guess what? All of a sudden, they're going to stand up free trials and get the customers to send 2,000 team messages before they even sign them up. Kudos. Magic is happening. And hey, marketing, their definition of MQL is not the conversion to close, it's the conversion to people who are successful that send to that. So you can see how like, wow, this is beautiful. Everyone is focused on this North star and it's building such a wonderful foundation for our business. That makes sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you think a lot of companies, so there's, I I feel like there's the multi-time founders, especially successful founders who kind of get this, right? So DC Mm with Drift, Basically, Ooh. like, I mean, they spent two years, four different <laughs> prototypes of diff- very different products, totally. you know, doing the unscalable stuff. Is it for first time founders? Is it oftentimes one of these things where, like, they're just so focused on revenue that they just miss yes. out on this? Always. That, that's the basic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah it's, that's it's, hard. it's hard to yeah. be like, it's hey, like, we are not going to, like, go after revenue. We're going to go after this metric. Um, I, you know, it stands to reason. It's just one of those things where there's it's just all this weird pressure on, in, in the other direction.
1: Totally, exactly. I don't know who causes for the entrepreneur or the investor or both. Like, but that yeah. is, it's just premature. There is a point where revenue is a great benchmark of success, and you know mm. it has to be. But like, it's way, it's it, it's just too premature in many organizations. You know, yeah. especially with this move to SaaS and subscription, and like, you know, every customer having a huge megaphone called social media. If you're not like getting these early indicators or attention going, most of the time, you don't have a business.
0: Do you find, so let's let's imagine we got to 80% to 2000 messages or whatever that metric is. Yeah. Now we're in the go to market stage, right? Yes. And is that just like classic, you know, reps, reps, AEs, et cetera, like what, what kind of happens there? And then how do I know yeah. I'm at the end of that stage?
1: Yeah, it's scale and profitability and not profitability like EBITDA, but profitability like in economics. So basically like product market fit was like doing unscalable things, you know, Paul Graham, Y Combinator founder, like, you know, just throwing everything in the kitchen sink, founders onboarding customers, trying to get 80% to be successful. Hmm. Now we just have to keep doing that at scale. In the first phase, like if you're talking to me about like your pricing model and your sales comp plan, and you're like your playbook and like, I don't care about any of that. Like it's that doesn't early. matter. But mm-hmm. now it's like, great. You just proved that every time you sign up a cohort of customers, 80% of them are successful. Now we just need to show we can do it scalable. And in the world of software, especially SaaS, we use unit economics as that measure, right? Mm-hmm. So you folks have been great contributors to the, 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 the information out there like um, LTV to CAC and greater than three, payback periods, whatever your poison or all three. That's we need to show that we're at least on track to demonstrate that. And, and again, these those are lagging indicators. So we have to figure out what the lead indicators are, which is not hard. It's algebra. It's basically, like, okay, I know that I want, I want my business to have a payback period of 12 or less, or I want my business to have an LTB to CAC of three or more. Well, through simple algebra, I can extract that back to like how many meetings a month a week does that mean? What's my conversion from meeting to stage two to pipeline to customer for that to work? What's my average revenue per customer for that to work? And I can set up like lead indicator dashboards to show that I'm going to produce that. So so that's all the go-to-market phases, just demonstrate that you're scalable. And, and at that phase, it, the playbook does matter. We need a sales playbook. So we need like, at least someone on the sales team that could build that usually like a three or four person sales team at that point to like demonstrate that the playbook scales. We need at least one demand gen channel. We didn't need that in the product market fit phase. I just want, I want referrals from my board. I don't care. But now we need a scalable demand gen channel before we start scaling. We need to figure out the comp plan and the pricing model. Those are like huge levers hmm. that impact the LTV to CAC. So we got to get all that right. And this could take anywhere from two months to four months. I'm not talking about years. Like this is just something we got to do. And now once you have both of those done, you have your lead indicators of retention and your lead indicators of go-to-market, of your economics set up. Those two dashboards are your, now your speedometer. And now we can move into growth and moat. And again, I'm not talking years here. I'm just talking about like sequential yeah. steps to just build the right foundation in your business. And now let's hire two reps every other month for six months. Okay, now we can scale. We're in growth and mo. Let's not hire 10 reps next month. Let's hire two reps every other month for six months. And let's watch the speedometer. If it stays green, if as we add reps, they're, they're signing up customers that have the same level of success and they're signing them up in a way that shows good unit economics, then let's go faster. Let's go to two reps every month for six months. If it stays green, let's go to four reps every month for six months. And if it stays green, let's go to eight reps a month for six months. That is cruising.
0: Yeah, that
1: is cruising. Now you're on triple, triple, double, double, but you're healthy. Yeah. And it's going to break. It's gonna break. When you scale, it's gonna break at some point. But most organizations don't detect that it's broken until they see the quarterly P&L, mm. the board meeting way too late. You are cooked. If you're waiting for your attention to blow up to know that your company's somewhat broken, you're cooked. Mm. So we have to know early with the leading occasion or attention, and then we just slow down, fix it, and then get it back on track. Hmm.
0: I'm just, Does that make sense, I'm, Patrick? Or yeah. is it just like I'm too hard to conceptualize? No, it's I'm fundamentally rethinking everything we're doing. So that means it's good. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm literally just like, because nice. oh. I think, you know, what's kind of funny is like, you know, and this is, this is my first company, right? And so there's, you know, there, there's a lot of like first principle thinking I can think from. Sure. But I think that- the struggle I think a lot of execs have, even you know, established execs is the prioritization of things, right? And totally I, what you're talking about with these three stages, I think with the exception of the product market fit stage, because I think that's advice that a lot of people give, but they just never follow it because of you know, not all people. It's
1: just really? too subjectively defined. It's too subjectively well, defined. Yeah, yes. I, think,
0: I also think that people they like the addiction of like you know like you said like oh yeah let's go sell that million I, I i exactly like there's companies that can brute force to a million in sales like they don't need a good yeah. product at all right but i think people do this like they don't do this sequentially they do like parallel like oh let's do this for growth and moat let's do this for scaling and i think this gives a really good you know especially that speedometer concept is like this is our speedometer this is what we agree to yep a couple of times we're going to fundamentally like rethink the speedometer but like as of right now like that's our north star that we need to check. Yeah, and just kind of go from there. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. But it, it is no, it's good, things,
1: man. We know. should spend some time off time on your business and like work, figure it out totally. Just do it. And then we can come back like six months and you, we can reflect on the on the show like how that absolutely, It'd be man. Cool. Yeah, because yeah,
0: it's been it's one of those things where I think we um you know not, not to talk about us that much, but like we have really good retention. Like our retain our, our net retention is really really good. I think we kind awesome. of we're waiting for like, we had that product market fit phase and then we've like stalled a little bit with the scale phase because we've been trying to do brute force too much. And I think we're just not following some of the fundamentals of some of the things you're talking about. And I think it's, it's probably because we haven't implemented those fundamentals alongside the speedometer. I mean, we, we mm-hmm. don't have a sophisticated speedometer, I guess, is a better like summary of this. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Sure. Yeah. It's a little ironic. I think it's because we look at all the data. We don't look at like, we haven't North it as much as we should. Yeah. It's rather.
1: hard, man. Like Steve Jobs yeah. said it best when he said the most difficult thing is figuring out what not to do.
0: It's yeah, so freaking hard. And then that's literally the past <laughs> you know I mean? six months, yeah. all the conversations going into 2021 planning have been focus, focus, focus. And we were like, we thought yeah. we were focused at the beginning of 2020. And now it's just yeah. like lopping off like giant things. Um, yeah kind of question for you though here is like when you look at larger companies let's just say large or is like mid-market on up you know 75 million a year on up yep like how does this where where does this kind of apply to them right because in the growth mm-hmm. and moat stage a lot of them don't protect the moat a lot of them kind yep. of stall on growth they try to replicate things across different products like where mm-hmm. where are you seeing some hangups in this model for them
1: yeah there's two things i would say like and it's one area that we just haven't got to the evolution as much. Like, I think people are still implementing the basics, but the moat part's really important because when you ask people like, well, what is your moat? They usually attach it to some product feature that, and then you ask them, okay, what would it take your competitors to do to copy that? And there's usually about three months of R and D time and then they're good. So like, I don't consider that a true moat. Like yeah. you really got to ask yourself, okay, what can you do in your business such that imagine 10 rockstar engineers quitting Google raising 50 million from Sequoia and basically reverse engineering your product and sell it for half the price? Why do you still win? That's Mm -hmm. a difficult question to answer, but a very important one. And so you have to feed, sometimes you have to feed that moat positioning. And sometimes that comes at the expense of growth a little bit, Um, but that's that's one common one. The other big one is usually when you hit that 75 million, you're looking for new growth opportunities, right? And so what you've essentially done is you found product market and go-to-market fit in a segment, and I, I define segments as three-dimensional product, market, and channel, right? Mm-hmm. So like you maybe have found it in like the mid-market selling through an uh, inside sales team against inbound leads, a particular product, like your, your legacy product. And now you have this idea to go international, change mm-hmm. the market, or you have this idea to stand up a cold calling team, right? As a, as a different demand gen channel, or you have this idea to build a new product and sell that. And the mistake most organizations make at that point is they're kind of looking at their plan and like, okay, you know, we did 75 million. Um, our board wants us to grow 50%. So we got to get to like 110 next year. Let's put all the math together. And it turns out with the, the product market channel combination, we can get to about 100. Hmm. So we have to find 10 million somewhere. So I have an idea. And usually this conversation is happening yeah. in like December. Okay. So I have an idea let's tell the board we're going to build a new product and we're going to sell 10 million of it next year. Like that happens all the time. It's like, dude, seriously? Like you're not that good. You know, like I don't understand why. Why did you like realize that you're not going to like hire a sales team when you're in the idea stage, when you are like a seed funded business. But now all of a sudden, you think you're going to like build a new product and hire all these reps at the same time and launching it at your conference and it's just going to work? Right, So that's the biggest mistake is you have to repeat the process I'm talking about, a very data-driven approach to scale, like product market fit, go-to-market fit, anytime you make a major change to your product market or channel. And so as you're approaching 75 million, you better have like three experience at the least running because they take about a year to unleash to, to serve as your next growth channel.
0: Thanks to Mark Roberge for lending us his time. Now you know what to do in order to scale your SaaS business. On today's episode, we talked about how HubSpot developed a data-driven sales playbook the powerful potential of combining marketing and customer success, the science of scaling, leading indicators that signal a readiness to scale, and what to do when scaling breaks. Oh, and if you want Mark's book, all you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch, and email me a screenshot to pc at and we'll make sure to hook you up. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of